0: Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 33 of the podcast, the topic is sustainable manufacturing at scale. Our guest is Scott N. Miller, managing director of Dragon Ventures. In this conversation, we talk about his early experience building Roomba robot vacuum cleaners at iRobot, contract manufacturing challenges for startups. Global hardware ecosystems, investing in hardware and industrial innovation, manufacturing strategy, the new product introduction process, and how to navigate the journey from prototype through high volume manufacturing, including Shenzhen business models for 10K units factory first runs. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Thrun Arneuenheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform and associated with MFG.Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing well, too. I'm super excited to talk to you. We had a, a wonderful call earlier, so I wanted to see if we could uh, do even better, but I don't know if we can. Do
1: you think we can top our, our own private prep call? Yeah, no, that was great. And uh, it's fun to um, to get ready. But yeah, this is going to be a blast. And thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to talk with you.
0: So I want to start, and so am I, I want to start with this. You're, you're a cyclist. Um, yeah. What does that have to do with anything? How did you become Uh, a cyclist? Uh, Is it, you know, yeah, there's a little story there.
1: Yeah, sure. So for me, uh, being an engineer, a bicycle was sort of the most easy thing to to tinker with um, just because it's all very accessible. But it also was a way to be able to get around before I had my driver's license. And for some reason, I had a, and still do a, a pretty big tandem fetish. So I've collected over the course of my time here probably four or five different tandems from really crappy rental ones to pretty nice ones. And one oh, of the things good. I ended up doing is modifying them and riding them down staircases. Um, but yeah, for <laughs> <some> reason, <bike laughs> that's not, that's not the regular use, but yeah, I get it. Well, the good thing on a tandem is you can't endo cause the thing has got such a long wheelbase. Um, and that used to be one of my concerns. Now that I'm a little better mountain biker, biker, it's less of a problem, but, uh, but yeah, no, I've always been fascinated with bikes, and was lucky to go on a couple century rides, which um, you know is uh, sort of a, uh, an interesting experience.
0: The reason I started with bikes and cycling is that that's actually the most uh, normal and sort of least exotic of the things where I could have started. Because you know, n- you know, not only are you a mechanical engineer, you know, with very very hands on things and experiences, which we're going to talk about in terms of hardware design. But you did, I I mean, from what I understand, you began building robots pretty early on at MIT, including some biomimetic ones. Tuna fish were were involved. And, uh, you know, this is Ocean's engineering robotics. I mean, it's about the coolest you could do. Although then you went to Disney. I mean, you got to give me this story and kind of unbundle it for people because you kind of have everybody's uh, engineering dream career. You've touched upon all of the fascinating companies, all of the cool technologies. How did you uh, get to do all that, and how was it like?
1: Yeah, it was. It's and it was probably the most fun I've had. Um, like I've been lucky and had uh, an enjoyable ride, but th- this um, career was a huge blast. So uh, for me, I've always loved the ocean. In addition to biking, and had the chance to do some sailing. Before I uh, headed out to sea, I just put in my application for MIT graduate school, just hoping for the best, and then disappeared um, out to sea for months. And I got a call from my mom somewhere in Tahiti saying, hey, guess what? You got in. I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. Um, So I went for ocean engineering and naval architecture, and we are working on a project for the US Navy to find ways to make undersea propulsion more efficient for autonomous undersea vehicles. And um, we wanted to use a different means than a propeller. So we looked to mother nature and she's been at it a lot longer than we have. And we found the longest swimming, most efficient uh, vehicle was the tuna fish. So it's kind of funny back in the mid nineties, CAD was at its infancy. Uh, There's like, at least where I was, there's no 3d or very little 3d. So everything was 2d. And what we ended up doing is going to central square buying a 46 inch tuna fish from a fishmonger, (laughs) running it through a bandsaw to get like one inch stakes and then tracing the profile on a piece of paper and then taking those and then lofting them together, which is a traditional naval architecture approach to create the 3D hull form. And it's, it's funny, like today you would just like laser scan it and be done with it. But back in the day you had to jump through all those hoops. And the weird thing is we had a bunch of tendons running through the fish that would actuate the different bulkheads. And we're always afraid the holes would be a little bit off, so we just print out the 2D drawings and hold them up to light and make sure that, like as a silhouette, the holes all lined up. So we knew that we were actually designing the thing properly.
0: It's fantastic. So, all right. So there was Tahiti involved. There was a lot of sailing. You you sailed schooners, uh, but then somehow you got yourself into. um, Well, was next in your ride? Was that Disney?
1: Yeah, so we had our lab um, at MIT with the fish, and somehow the fish ended up on the cover of Scientific American doing this crazy backflip, which it totally couldn't. Like if we were being realistic what the fish was, it was a glorified puppet on a mast with the motors offboard. So there's no way it could be anywhere near the ocean, much less doing a backflip. But they took a few liberties. And a VP at Disney saw this and was like, oh, my God, um, we need help with our robotics. Maybe we can hire the whole lab. So he um, came in, developed a relationship with my friend and mentor, Dave Barrett, who is running the lab, and wanted us all to move to California. But Dave, um, for um, assorted reasons, um, that wasn't possible. So he ended up saying, oh, no problem. Why don't you guys just set up a lab right behind MIT? You'll have access to great talent. And it'll almost be like a startup within Disney, except that you'll have as much funding as you want. So, we're like, oh, okay, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it, it truly was. The funny thing is, we all had to interview for the job, and I was working down in the Cape on a undersea robotics company, um, you know, doing more um, more robots down there. And I'd signed up for the interview, but. I never heard back from them and I just sort of assumed like, well, maybe it didn't work out. I didn't get it. But the day before I called up and it's like, Hey, you know, is the interview still on? And like, oh yeah, you're scheduled tomorrow at three. It's like, Oh man. All right. Yes. Yeah, so I went up. I think I totally blew the interview. They asked me some crazy question about the aerodynamic effects of a disk drive. Um, which I had no idea. So I came up with some stupid answer and the guy was totally not buying what I was selling. But um, (laughs) somehow I I got in and um, yeah, it was an amazing... And you ended up
0: building walking dinosaurs.
1: Let's not forget. Yep, only at Disney can you do that. Um, But yeah, we built a full-size walking robotic dinosaur that we powered by a Corvette engine.
0: (sighs) You can't make this up. You can't make (laughs) it up. So then, you joined iRobot uh, fairly early in in the iRobot lifecycle. There weren't that many of these uh, robots around, and you went through uh, a bunch of things there. Um, tell me about right. how you got into, I guess the uh, the real core of of, of the story. We, I, I'm really really curious about today is is what, what you started doing there, which was scaling manufacturing internationally, uh, for right. So so tell me a little bit about how that happened.
1: Yeah, so that was sort of a turning point in my career where I went from building onesies, just onesies, you know, robots where you could file the corner and get them to work to high volume. And basically, we had met Colin and Helen when we were at Disney. They were trying to get us to buy a crazy six le- six-legged walking robot to do experiments on. And um, I think we ended up doing that, but I I really liked them. So when it was time to make a change, uh, a bunch of us went from Disney to iRobot. Initially, I was hired to um, basically lead a project to build a real R2-D2 in a month for uh, what was called Toy Fair in New York. And when I took the job, I was like, yeah, there's no way we can build R2-D2 in a month. But At least it'll be a fun month, and then I'll probably get fired and go on to the next thing. And lucky for me, George Lucas um, canceled the project and said, like, no, R2-D2 doesn't serve beer at Toy Fair, so you can't do that. Because otherwise, I'm sure I would have gotten canned. But uh, kind of in in the sort of somewhat of my theme, in dumb luck, I got put in charge of a joint venture we had with Hasbro, trying to learn high volume manufacturing. And we ended up building about 100,000 of this really freaky looking baby doll. And for me, I had never seen any Chinese manufacturing or anything of any sort of volume. And it it just blew me away, like just learning how the stuff is actually built and being able to go to the factory. So I think based on that, I didn't have much experience, but I had a little, Colin ended up um, giving me the opportunity to take a Roomba prototype, get on a plane, fly to China for four years, and then set up all the manufacturing with an, a remarkable team for the first four million or so Roombas. Hmm.
0: Well, so that gets us into kind of new new product development and, and what you then uh, turned out, you know turned into doing because you you worked with iRobot, got this experience, and you learned so much from that that you basically now could start selling this approach to a bunch of different companies right so that's where the dragon part of your career showed up and i was just um yeah i wanted you to 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 tell me a little bit about how that um process works so why have 400 clients come to dragon innovation to, to to understand how to do this is it really that hard to manufacture at scale or or to manufacture in shenzhen to be specific
1: Yeah, I think that they're both very challenging. And it's one of these where it doesn't seem as hard as it is. Um, I use the analogy of an alphabet where A is the idea, like, let's go build a vacuuming robot or whatever the product is. And then I've changed it a little bit, but it used to be Z was product in the customer's hands. And most companies that have built a prototype think they're near the middle of the alphabet, like MRN. But they're actually around B or C. Hmm. And the thing is, as you scale, things get exponentially more complex in that you've got to, regardless of where you build, you've got to go and find a great factory that's well-suited for what you're trying to do, which is just really, really hard to do, especially as a startup. And then you have to think through design for manufacturer, design for assembly, design for test, design for cost, maybe design for logistics. Like all the, There's all this DFX stuff that you have to consider. Hmm. And the challenge is a lot of it is unknown unknowns if you haven't done it before. And as we often say, education's expensive. So it could be that you need to go through a few companies before you figure it out. And I think the key insight we had with my last company, Dragon Innovation, having lived through it with iRobot, is that if we can help companies see around corners and make fewer mistakes and get the early decisions right, which often cast long shadows, they have a much better um, chance of a successful outcome. Just because often when you make a decision, the implications of that might be months or years down the road, and it can be very difficult to unwind some of those decisions. Um, So yeah, manufacturing is, uh, uh, hopefully it will get simpler, but it's still pretty, pretty insanely complex.
0: But generally, is contract manufacturing always the answer to manufacturing for startups, or are there times when uh, you should go counterculture and just say no? We're going to actually div- build our own factory.
1: Yeah. So there are a few options to consider. I think often the using a, a third party or a contract manufacturer is typically it may be the right choice if you're doing lower volume so say you are building 100 to 500 units then it's probably better to do it in house just because it takes longer to teach somebody else to do it than if you just did it yourself mm-hmm. the challenge is if you want to set up your own factory then not only are you launching your own product but then you've got to figure out how a factory works and to run that which adds a lot more complexity Whereas if you can work with a partner that already understands that and has that infrastructure, it can give you a head start. Although you will end up potentially paying a little bit higher price for that upfront.
0: At Tulip, we've I think we've done some experiments by actually you know uh, automating some of the some of the runs. Like because you know I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that yes, you may go there and set it up, but eventually you're sort of manufacturing at a distance. So there is this communication challenge. And uh, how far would you say software uh, is right now when it comes to uh, giving the precise instructions so that it is actually possible to, to not only just manufacture at scale, but to adjust it and take in all the information you know, at, on the factory floor, almost as if you were there, right? Because there are all of these communication challenges that uh, it would seem at every stage of the process.
1: Yes. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head that we've always said the biggest challenge in manufacturing is communication. It's uh, when you're developing a product with a really tight knit product development team, you're often all in the same room, at least before covid and it's a very high bandwidth connection, you've got similar backgrounds, and kind of a shared vision for what you're doing. But the minute you start working with a CM, um, or a manufacturing, um, you know, partner, even if they're in your backyard, it's much, much more challenging. And then you throw in uh, China, which is, you know, maybe 8,000 miles away with a different time zone, language, culture. Um, often, like I know, when we were building the Roomba, nobody had ever seen uh, an autonomous floor cleaning robot before. So, like they had no idea what what it is we we're actually building, and to try to explain that um, was incredibly difficult. So, I think things have matured a lot, but I think there's also a lot of opportunity going forward. The what we see, and, and one of the things I'm so excited about what um, Tulip is doing is that there's often a gap in that. Um, companies often use email, Excel, um, things, PowerPoint at one end, or they have to use this big, heavy enterprise software at the other end, which is expensive, time-consuming, not always obvious. And I think there's a huge opportunity in the middle for modern, easy-to-use software that doesn't cost an arm and a leg, a leg, um, and uh, you know does get at the heart of communications. So yeah I think um good progress has been made, but there's um, endless opportunity ahead to kind of build out that um, that area that would address the gap
0: yeah i mean it 's so interesting because you know clearly with any t- any time you you deal with third parties, there is that communication challenge, but it wasn 't such a big problem, I guess if it was a very clear and simple just a part but but when it is the entire process that you 're outsourcing that 's and it is a complicated new, new new product. Like typically, I guess you work mostly with kind of st- tech startup type uh, develop har- hardware products.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We uh, work with a lot of startups, but we're seeing an increasing number of what we would call non-traditional customers. So imagine um, one of our former customers was one of the big coffee brands and they know how to... Build a lot of coffee, but they never really built a hardware product. Mm. But they realized if they IoTified some of their brewers, then they could be a lot more efficient. So they knew what they wanted to do, but they just didn't have any experience with hardware. So even though they're a very well-established company, it was much more like a startup. And I think we're seeing more and more of this.
0: That's interesting. I mean, historically, right? Uh, people realized that if you have to integrate hardware and software, it gets more complex. That's kind of like logical even, right? Uh, because there is a physical thing that you have to take into account. Do you see a, a large potential there? Do you, I mean, is it an expanding market, this uh, sort of IoT integration of uh, of software and hardware?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was amazed by the number of these non-traditional customers we saw, which are all billion-dollar companies that want to sort of move sideways and incorporate an IoT solution. Mm-hmm. And some were fairly straightforward, um, others were more complex. But I think um, there's an opportunity to pr- help provide that solution that would go from the device to the cloud and then analyzing the data. Because, um, And it's not necessarily my expertise, but just opening up um, things like security issues to make sure that the data is safe during the transmission and things like that. A lot can go wrong if, if that gets uh, <laughs> gets in the hands of somebody that shouldn't have it. Um, But if it's done well, the business insights that that it can provide and the extra functionality um, can really unlock some either savings or new revenue opportunities.
0: Cool. I I wanted to have you ask, uh, you know, t- uh, tell me a little bit about industry opportunities that you see emerging, uh, whether they're in startups or, like you just said, for for even for larger companies. What are some things that you are excited about at the moment uh, that you see coming into your space, and whether it is individual startups that are doing uh, cool things, or it is a broader industry trend that uh, that you have engaged with?
1: Mm. So certainly a lot of growth in robotics. Uh, I think before iRobot was really the only successful robotic um, company at scale, uh, you know, at least in the consumer space. And now that, that with um, ROS and more affordable and capable sensors, uh, and likewise processors, you can do things that you could never do before, uh, and also work at a higher level of abstraction, so you don't necessarily need to be down in the weeds. Um, so I'm seeing definitely a lot of bit of growth, a lot of growth in that area. Um IoT in general. It's been sort of overhyped for the last five or six years, but I, I still um remain excited about that and just providing connectivity um to uh devices at, at a cost, especially with the decreasing price of radios. Um one that I'm particularly excited about and I think is still quite early but is the idea of sustainability or more of a circular economy so how to how can we be gentler to the planet that we live on and um some companies are starting to to work on that um so i'm I'm excited hopefully that trend will will grow
0: well you 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 told me something earlier you said early decisions cast long shadows and and initially I thought you were kind of reflecting on your own career in terms of you know all the products you've worked with and you've seen kind of these trajectories like you make a decision and it has some impact uh but maybe you can address address that both in terms of you know your overall experience and how it relates to to sustainability this idea of early decisions in in specifically in hardware development
1: Yes, yeah. So if for the um, for one example, especially given the supply chain shortages on the ICs that we're seeing now, if you were to um, do an electrical design and pick a particular processor, then realize after you develop your entire code base that you can't buy that processor for a year, that could be incredibly painful, especially if you're a startup with um, you know with the burn, so you you don't have revenue coming in. And uh, I was just talking to my um, friends at a major chip company, trying to understand, you know, like, why is there such a crunch right now? And I got a little bit more insight. It sounds like when COVID hit, automotive put everything on hold, so they weren't buying any chips. In fact, they were sending them back. And then that provided them to the consumer electronic companies because everybody's staying home and there's a bigger demand there. But now that COVID has slowed down a little bit, at least in some parts of the world, people want new cars. So automotive has this huge demand on top of the already growing consumer demand. And there's just not enough um, chip, uh, chips available, whether it's the lead frames or the raw materials or the foundries or what have you. So there's a huge crunch, which is probably not going to get better for the next 18 months or so. And towards the idea of early decisions cast along shadows, if you can make component selections that are more readily available, you'll have a much better chance of a favorable outcome. Whereas if you unwittingly pick a component that has a year lead time, then you've really made a choice that's gonna have profound downstream implications in terms of your viability as a business. For for some reason, like capacitors, are always a really long lead time. So, totally unsexy component, but it's hard to build a processor with uh, build a product without them.
0: Interesting. And as relates to sustainable manufacturing, so uh, first off, right, it would seem that sustainability at scale is the first challenge because you can kind of conceptualize, like we've talked about, that which is already a hard hard process. So, whenever you're really trying to innovate with a lot of different constraints, so it's sustainability. You're introducing new new materials that haven't perhaps been tested before, because that's the point, right? Um, wh- how does the early decisions come in there, and what are what are some of the things that you are now trying to 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 do? I know, like you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, but but what does that really mean for for, for product development, and uh, you know the way you've seen it?
1: Right. Yeah. So I had mentioned a little earlier in our conversation the concept of the alphabet as a time scale for product development. And it used to be AZ idea, Z's product in the customer's hands. I look at it now more that um, middle of, el- of the alphabet is when the customer gets the product. But then there's this huge question when they're done with it, what happens to it? Like it doesn't magically disappear. So that's kind of the back half of the alphabet. And as I reflect back on my career, I've been lucky to probably help companies build tens, of, let's say, tens of millions of products. But the thing that keeps me awake at night is a lot of them are just going to end up in landfill. And how can we make the decisions up front so that they'll, um, you know, be kinder to the earth? And one of those options is reducing. Um, but most companies that want to grow, the idea of selling less isn't is, um, isn't really the direction they want to go in. So still something to consider, Um, but then the others are recycle or reuse. And towards that end, if we can design products that actually can be repaired, then they can have a lot longer life and um, hopefully stay out of landfill for a greater amount of time. So the trick is how do you design something to be repairable? Well, those are all decisions you have to make up front so that maybe it's more of a modular design. Um, so that the components like motors that we know are going to wear out sooner can be replaced, but it also can influence the design. Uh, so Apple, of course, is at the bar very high for consumer, consumer design. If we can um, build products that have a design aesthetic such that it's going to last many years as opposed to just be the hottest thing this year and become dated afterwards, then I think that will give it more longevity. From a recycling standpoint, right now, we typically have to recycle um, single materials. So if you were to design a product that had a lot of overmolding and combine two different materials, it's very difficult to recycle that. So we may want to change the way we do the design for assembly that potentially if it is two materials, they can be easily disassembled or there's a way to remove the circuit board and put that in one stream and then put the plastic in a different stream. And this all takes more effort. But if we think through it up front, then it does um, enable that downstream.
0: You had a great example earlier, I thought, which I wanted to bring up with uh, when it comes to bioplastics, which I, I know is a controversial, but it's an issue that has gotten really a lot of attention, right? Plastics, and, and we all understand that that turned out to be you know, ultimately a bad idea, a very good technology for a while until we realized what it was doing to the environment long term. But bioplastics aren't automatically the solution. why is that uh, unless mm. you know unless you take care to 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 change something about the process and the way that it's uh, handled Yes,
1: yeah, so there's a lot of confusion around what a bioplastic is it's a generally a, a poorly defined um, term, and there's some that will be compostable there's some that are made from um, more biofriendly materials like corn, but they all have different characteristics and one of the things that I think creates a lot of trouble is when you take say a corn based or a, or a compostable bioplastic and put it in the recycling stream, it can ruin that batch because it's not really recyclable it's compostable and the public isn't very well educated on that important distinction. Um, it's also I think been um fallen into um a way to differentiate a marketing that companies will claim they have all this cool um compostable or bioplastics when in practice you know maybe it's not as compostable or earth friendly as as one might hope, but it's just a way to you know get some market share um so it's a little bit like the wild west out there when it comes to that
0: well having said that though, if there was a bioplastic that that truly did all those things, and we found a way to <laughs> put it in the right place once we've used it. That would seem like a, a, a game changer as well.
1: Yes, yeah, and then I think the question is how long does it take to break down? Um, it, does it re- can you compost it in your backyard or most of these require a commercial composting operation? And some of them still last quite a bit of time before they you know revert to their their basic elements
0: yeah and and that matters a lot. I have recently started composting after a while uh you know watching it and it 's a frustrating process because you know you put the wrong thing in there or you don 't cut it right or 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 indeed someone else puts in something that 's uh composed at a different pace and then you 're stuck with that item in there you know, like you, you want to use the compost, but you have a a bunch of like bulky stuff inside your compost it's Composting right. is not, uh, you know, it's not easy actually to get right.
1: It's not easy, yeah. And there's, um, I think, a lot about consumer goods because that's the space I work in. But if you look at single-use packaging with multi-layer materials, those are one-and-done. They're incredibly high volume and they're impossible to recycle. Um, so that's one area as companies think about their packaging, um, trying to make it more earth-friendly. And the other huge one is just one single use medical waste. Um, There are a bunch of things that can be done in that to make it more recyclable, uh, such as using the same material, meaning the same resin and the same color for a whole product that that can be sterilized, ground up and reused. But for example, if you use two different colors, so you've got a vial with a blue cap and a white body, then unless you separate that, that's just going to be burned for energy um yeah you pointed out that inks which not is not my expertise for sure
0: but it seems to be any kind of solution that contains uh, some sort of colorant or a dye or a pigment or something and, and it's used obviously in almost uh, every industrial product out there well, what can be done there you said so it's just keeping the color u- u- uniform essentially because colors do they decompose at different uh, mm-hmm. rates
1: is that what happens yeah, so the, um, with the inks, it's often in the packaging, and many of them have heavy metals within the ink that um, can create um, quite a bit of trouble. On the plastic, those streams, particularly on the medical, because the single use is so high, especially these days, the trick is keeping it the same resin and the same color, which is often at odds with what the marketing team might want to do because it doesn't look as good if it's you know just kind of bland but it does make it a lot more earth-friendly and there is a a startup doing all sorts of cool things where they will take this medical waste if it is um, designed as I described they'll sterilize it they'll grind it up and then they'll remold it so that it has a much more circular use as opposed to just burning it for energy which I guess is better than landfill but not by much.
0: Well, that that certainly is a is a huge issue, and it would seem that the the Boston area w- would be fertile for p- possible innovation in that space too, right? I mean, there's Boston Scientific. There's certainly a lot of uh, innovators in the space there. Do you, do you do you think that the medical waste issue will get tackled this decade? Is it uh, easy easy enough to tackle, or is it going to take much longer? Like, if you decompose. I mean, could you take 20% of the waste and deal with that easily? Or, and is the 80%... Is it like one of those types of issues where a bulk of it is going to take a while to figure
1: out? Yeah, I'm optimistic on the medical side that this decade um, that you know, we'll get towards the 80%. Uh, oh, really? That, yeah, the, the challenge with plastic is it's not very expensive and el- not a lot of it is recycled. Um, but I think in the medical side, there's enough volume. So for example, for aluminum... Um, when you throw away or when you recycle an aluminum can, it typically takes about 90 days before that aluminum shows up in, in the next can. So it's a very efficient cycle. Aluminum is expensive to mine. In fact, if you were to fill up half a can of aluminum with gasoline, that's about how much energy it takes to um, to create that raw aluminum from the bauxite. So aluminum is a great thing to recycle. The problem with plastic is only 9% of the plastic is actually recycled, and plastic is not inherently very valuable for the most part. So there's a lot less economic um, incentive to recycle it versus metal.
0: So that leads me to the question, I mean, wouldn't the solution here not just be to develop bioplastics, but you need to develop something with better properties than plastic that's even cheaper? Otherwise, it would seem that this is, this is not a decade problem. This thing could, could last forever because plastics have been around for a while and they're just enormously efficient in your in your words here
1: yes they're efficient from pretty much every aspect other than the environment um, they're very strong they're cost effective they're robust uh, they're cheap uh, but yeah I think the where I'm excited initially on the medical waste is going down the recycling path of just being able to get a better reuse of um, of that the yeah, it's a much bigger problem to to um basically synthesize a new resin that is better than the existing stuff and also more environmentally friendly. So yeah, that that's a much bigger undertaking.
0: Fascinating stuff. So, you know, what gets you up at uh, night and keeps you coming into work uh, in the morning that is more now on the sustainability side, uh it seems like
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's an area. And for me, I'm on this, the fun or the steep part of the learning curve. I mean, the interesting thing is it's such a complex equation that you have to look at the whole life cycle of a, um, of a product. And it's, it's not always intuitively obvious what the right answer is. Um, So I think we're still fairly nascent in trying to understand all those different pieces and be able to compare apples to apples so that you can make uh, an informed decision. Um, so yeah, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on that front, and and that's why it's exciting.
0: Yeah. Lastly, I mean, 3D printing is one of those areas where you sort of would think that eventually you could do some innovations in in the materials going into them. And uh, there was recently one announcement that I think you and I were just briefly talking about, but Desktop Metal came out with this experimental process for printing wood or or some wood version. Uh, that would seem if that really pans out to be to be one example of a, of a game changer although you know wood can 't be used for everything but uh, but it is a it is definitely a, a biological uh, product. What do you think you know generally in the th- sort of the three d space what 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 else are we likely to see uh develop there and and how does that relate to kind of this these very complicated products that you 've been building because you know up until now we have been printing fairly simple parts to be honest, right so the, my question is you know how quickly are we going to move into the much more advanced uh, product development that that you've been involved with uh, mm-hmm. you know
1: yeah, so as we think about getting 3d printing for high volume, I think there's a few um, things that need to change. a big one is the cycle time yeah. uh, so right now you know it may take hours if not days to print a fairly large part, whereas injection molding I can do a shot every 30 seconds um so it's night and day on that front and that also relates to the cost in that there's if you take the overhead of the transformation there's just a lot more cost if it takes longer the materials are getting much much better from desktop metal or mark forged like the the parts you get out of that are incredible they just take a long at this point they have a long cycle time the um the other challenge I have um, with them is the support material, particularly in stereo lithography. Uh, as much as I love my um, assorted uh, SLA printers, I spend a lot of time clipping off the support and it just leaves dimples everywhere, which is not, like I can't use that for a production part. I know um, there's a couple of companies doing some really cool stuff that doesn't require support. Or if you use um, uh, SLS, then the powder holds up the part so you don't need support material. And I know Formlabs has launched a, a really cool um, product in that area. Uh, but yeah, I think cycle time, cost, supports, materials are pretty good. Um, and then some like uh, Fortify 3D has done some very cool stuff, making very, very strong parts using some proprietary uh, magnetics, getting fibers to align in the right direction according to the strain. So I think there's still still options there, but but from a production standpoint, we have a ways to go.
0: Last question for you, and I know that this is not your field anymore, but if you were an Imagineer right now and you're working on the next uh, big exhibit down there at Disney, what what sort of technologies would you bring with you in your backpack when you're setting up the next, I mean, interactive uh, exhibit? What, What sort of technologies would go into it these days?
1: Yeah. So I always have liked immersive experiences, but much more than VR where you're, just sort of a, a watcher, but something where you can participate and feel. Um, I don't know if you remember um, a long time ago in the ninth floor of the AI lab, they had what was called sensible. So it was a haptic feedback device. And I remember playing with that the first time and I was just blown away that you it sort of bridged the gap between the screen and, and your perception. Um, so something like that I think would be really compelling for Disney. They had one ride, and I forget the name of it, but you basically were flying. You got in, uh, it was an indoor, um, somewhat VR ride, um, but they really gave you the illusion and sort of that magical feeling of of drifting through air. And I think we could um, continue to do that. I remember that ride, actually. I think
0: we're talking about the same one. I just can't remember what it's called. But that is a It was
1: was so cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and whether it's in the air, being an ocean engineer, in the water, even better. Um, But yeah, I, I love that type of uh thing where you get the thrill without the danger
0: well there uh, is a lot of thrill in your field and i thank you for taking us on a on a ride here today thanks a lot scott
1: oh well thank you for having me i really enjoyed the conversation
0: you have just listened to episode 33 of the augmented podcast with host through lana the topic was sustainable manufacturing at scale and our guest was scott N. miller managing director at dragon ventures In this conversation, we talked about contract manufacturing challenges for startups. My takeaway is that startups are ill-equipped to handle global contract manufacturing challenges. They are essentially being asked to take on complex supply chain and product development procedures that even large companies themselves struggle with. Yes, there is a way to navigate this terrain, and those who do can pick up tremendous bounties and might just change the world. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at AugmentedPodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 18, Transforming Foundational Industries, episode 23, Digital Manufacturing in the Cloud, or episode 9, The Fourth Industrial Revolution Post-COVID-19. Augmented. Industrial conversations that matter.